Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio WFMP LP Louisville. We broadcast out of the top of the historic Habern building here in downtown Louisville at 106.5 FM, but you can hear us all over the world at forwardradio.org. You might even hear us in East Java, Indonesia, because we're going to take you there today, continuing our series of conversations with returned Peace Corps volunteers from around Kentucky. And I'm really excited to have in the virtual studio with me, Will and Amy Glasscock. Welcome, folks. Hey, Justin. Good to see you. Yeah, great to have you here with us. I love that technology is bringing us together. Y'all are in Lexington, right? Yeah. We're making the cross-Kentucky connection today, but we're going to try and cross the world again and bring our listeners to a place that, uh, I don't know, many of us probably don't get to, don't know much about. That's what Peace Corps Service has certainly done for many Americans. I had never really thought about the country I ended up serving in. Uh, I went down to Paraguay in South America from 2005 to 2008 with my wife, Amanda, and we served as a married couple just like you all. So that's one of of the special things we share and we can talk about what's unique about that experience what's good what's bad about it it has both of those things right <laughs> but you all served in indonesia from 2012 to 14 will is from winchester and amy's from berea so we've got a couple of kentucky natives and you all actually didn't meet until you went to washington dc you want to tell us about that yeah that's right we grew up you know about 45 minutes apart from each other but <laughs> we didn't meet until we were both working in in Washington, D.C. in Congressman Ben Chandler's office. And we were friends for a long time before the romance developed, but it did eventually. And we got married surrounded by lots of our congressional friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Wow. I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, so uh, I know D.C. well. and was a wonderful place to grow up. But every time I go back there now, I'm like, wow, I, I don't know if I could hack this place now. Everyone, everyone's so serious there. They, they carry the weight of the world on their shoulders, you know, which is literally true. So <laughs> <laughs> Gotta understand, but Kentucky's more my speed, I think. <laughs> we were both there when we were probably 22. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the goal for both of us was to get back home eventually. And I, I love DC and I miss it a lot. And I'm, I'm still there quite a bit for work, but that was where Peace Corps fit into our plans was it was our chance to break from Washington and with the goal of ultimately moving back home, which is what we did. And we've been back for six years in Kentucky and haven't regretted any of those decisions. Cool. And when you got engaged, Peace Corps was part of the plan? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I remember Will sort of moping around thinking, <laughs> oh, I'm too old now. I missed my chance to join the Peace Corps. All my college dreams are ending. And <laughs> hesitant to move on with our life. And I was like, hey, listen, if you want to go to the Peace Corps, I'll go with you. It's just two years. Why not? So awesome. the plans rolled out from there. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. So it had always been something in your mind, Will. Tell us about that. When did you start first thinking about this? Gosh, growing up, I uh, grew up in Winchester. I had like the idyllic childhood, but was always interested in the world and, and yeah. travel and wanted to, to see more. And I didn't travel a ton growing up. I had a chance to go to Europe when I graduated high school uh -huh. for three weeks or something. But in college, I, you know, there were flyers around campus about Peace Corps. And at the time, you know, AmeriCorps was more of my speed. I'd interned in Washington. And then right before I graduated college, I got an offer to go back and work in the office I'd interned for. And so that was, uh, I couldn't pass up that opportunity. Uh, but then that's where I thought like, well, there goes my hopes of ever doing AmeriCorps, Peace Corps or something like that. Yeah. And, then, and, all, and, and then everything ended up working out. Fortunately, I met Amy who was who was on board with any ideas of adventure. So. <laughs> well, what what had been your adventures to date, Amy? Had you explored abroad? 
Yeah, I actually studied international relations at Berea College and then got oh, my nice. master's in diplomacy at the Patterson School at UK and then I moved to DC uh, to work on the Hill right after my master's program. And so, uh, you know, international relations and seeing the rest of the world was definitely a big part of my heart, even though my career had started taking me more into like lobbying and the energy sector and things. And I kind of felt like that was slipping away from me too. And so um, I definitely didn't think I'd be, you know, going into the Peace Corps mid-career, but it was definitely something that I was really glad I got to do, sort of immersing myself in another culture with people and learning a language, which I honestly thought that that ship had already sailed for me too. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're, you're never too old to serve in the Peace Corps. That's the thing. <laughs> Sometimes you're too young. There is an age minimum. <laughs> but uh, people could serve at any stage in their lives. One, one of our dear friends here in Louisville, oh gosh, I, I shouldn't guess her age, but I know she served well after retirement, right? Uh, people, people go over at all ages and have rewarding experiences no matter where they are in their career. And uh, I, Amanda and I went down when we were 30 as well uh, after finishing graduate school. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if Peace Corps came up in your, you know, when you were in Ben Chandler's office in DC, were, were there conversations about Peace Corps? Yeah, absolutely. I handled the you know, international relations portfolio. And so we would have the uh, Kentucky Return Peace Corps volunteers come to our office and on Peace Corps Day and lobby for, you know, Peace Corps funding. And he was on, you know, the Peace Corps um, caucus and was very supportive. And it's funny now because usually every year, Will is one of those Return Peace Corps volunteers now going up to the Hill and lobbying for funding. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you both have experience as lobbyists. Um, I don't know if they're if there's like lobbyist jokes, like there are lawyer jokes, but I assume most people have like a really bad in their mind of what a lobbyist must be. But t tell us a little bit more about what, what, what kind of lobbying you all do. I, I left the Hill first um, and, and went to become a lobbyist for the for the evil industry of public television. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so we had Big Bird and, and Elmo and Mr. Rogers. Um, they they was, need a lobbyist? Come on. But we, um, I, I, I loved working on the Hill, but that was an opportunity that came about through uh, through a Kentucky connection in, in D.C. And um, and, and I did that for about five years, uh, while living in DC. And then since we've been back from Peace Corps, I've been consulting, uh, from Kentucky for that same organization. Um, not, not lobbying, but doing some other work, but, but there's lobbyists that represent everything. And, and some are the good guys and some are, you know, less, <laughs> more questionable, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, lobbying was a great experience. And, and it's been, um, as Amy mentioned, when I get to go to DC annually, uh, I and I was there. February 26th this year. Uh, oh, wow. So just a couple of weeks before everything fell apart, I was I was on the Hill on behalf of Peace Corps, meeting with a number of the members of the K Kentucky delegation, and had and had great conversations. and um, And we can talk more about that later if you'd like. But but it's been Peace Corps is a really unifying thing in D.C. More so even than public television. You you don't find anyone that disagrees with Peace Corps. You may find people that question should the United States be spending money, but you don't have anyone questioning Peace Corps. Where public television, you, there are some people out there that think it's unnecessary, but but you don't find that with Peace Corps, even with the most conservative members of Kentucky's delegation that we've met with. Huh. And I worked for the America's Public Power Association, so they represented the municipal electric utilities across the country. So still public entities and I did that until Peace Corps. And I now work for the National Association of State Chief Information Officers doing a lot of 
like policy related stuff there. So my entire career has been related to the government, including Peace Corps. Huh. Wow. Okay. So sort of a call to public service in a way. (laughs) But when you thought about this call to service abroad and you applied to the Peace Corps, did you have a place like Indonesia in mind? Now you can kind of uh, apply for specific positions in specific countries. And and back then we couldn't, it wasn't that long ago, but yeah, you just are kind of like, here's our skills, which it turned out lobbying and government relations was not useful at all. (laughs) So so, uh, they quickly suggested that we needed to start teaching English as a second language in the evening. So we signed up to teach together at an organization in DC to get that experience in and really loved it. And so that's how we ended up getting placed in education as teachers, which is pretty common a thing to do in the Peace Corps. But yeah, once we found out we were going to Indonesia, we were like, well, that's pretty cool. You know, everybody's heard of Bali and uh-huh. Karta, and we had a, a lot of research to do really quickly. <laughs> yes, I bet. I bet. Now, before I served in the Peace Corps, I was a Fulbright scholar in the Southern Philippines. So I had the luxury of getting to know Southeast Asia. I lived there for nine months in 2001. In fact, I was in a bamboo hut in the Philippines on 9-11, listening to it all unfold on, on shortwave on the BBC. And the most special thing about that was I got a knock on my door early the next morning, and it was the locals uh, very concerned about, are you okay? Is your family okay? Is your country okay? You know, so news had obviously trickled down even to the rural villages in, in the Philippines, and they were very concerned. <laughs> and, you know, my parents live in Arlington, so good for them to make the connection. Yes. Fortunately, they don't work at the Pentagon. My goodness. But anyway, I never got over to Indonesia. I explored Cambodia, Vietnam, and Thailand a little bit. But even the Philippines is a very confusing place because it's 7,000 islands and about 700 languages, you know. So I imagine the Indonesian archipelago is similar. Give us a feeling for this huge, huge nation. What is it like? Yeah, I think it's probably similar to the Philippines in the number of languages. Uh, I think it's double doubles the Philippines in the number of islands. Wow. But it's the fourth biggest country in the world. Yeah. Largest Muslim country in the world. And I think the number of Muslims in Indonesia outnumber the number of Muslims in the Middle East combined. Whoa. It all these things that people would never know. You, you've heard of <laughs> Bali and that's about it. It's the ring of fire. So there's, you know, volcanoes. We were there during a volcanic eruption and and were evacuated to the largest city we lived near for a few days till everything kind of settled down. But it's a really, really incredible place with so many different cultures. But 60% of the population lives on the island of Java, which is about the size of Florida. But there were 100 million people living. Whoa. So we were in a super rural area, but we could hop on a bus and in 20 minutes be in a town of you know, 200,000. And an hour and a half away, we could be in, in Surabaya, which was, you know, several million people and malls that were fancier than anything back yeah. here. Banana yeah. Republic and Wendy's. <laughs> yeah. So it was really, it was, it's a really incredible country. And there's so many different types of culture and tradition and history. So whenever we talk about Indonesia, we can only speak to where we lived and the culture we lived in and the town we lived in, because to speak about the rest of the country is impossible. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. We, we got to recognize, though, how, how Americans might have been exposed to know about Indonesia. And I've been exposed to the nation in two, two disturbing ways. And I know it's a sensitive topic, but and we don't have to go into great depth about it. But just let's recognize people may have seen this film called The Act of Killing. 
which was so troubling in so many ways, but not a documentary, but inspired by real events, right, that relate back to a really troubling time during the Cold War when the U.S. through the CIA supported the overthrow of leftist regimes. And in Indonesia, it began in October of 65, and it ended up in a million people, unarmed, innocent, you know, people, just leftists, uh, whoever had been identified as, you know, quote-unquote communist, right, being slaughtered. And these tactics, in fact, became known as the Jakarta method and were exported around the world to places like Chile. And uh, I mean, we, we don't have time or even the knowledge to go into all of that story, but just to recognize, like, that's that's how some people in America might understand Indonesia. What does all that look like from over there? And that's a huge question, right? But any thoughts on that? So that movie, I believe it was released while we were living there. Okay. Uh, and I had a chance to watch it with other Peace Corps volunteers. We were at a, a friend of ours put on at what was at the time one of three marathons in the country. Now today in Indonesia, there's probably three marathons every day of the week. Oh, is that right? Uh, around. But at the time, it was the third marathon in the country that he put on as, as his Peace Corps project. And it's I think it's now in its seventh or eighth year and, and the, the local community's running it. And, but that's where we were. And someone someone had a copy of it and we watched it. And, and it, it was really horrifying. But it, I had a chance to talk with some of my closest friends there about it because it was a really it was a really sensitive, very sensitive topic. Yeah. Was not discussed much except for maybe references to this thing that had happened. And some people would say like, oh, yeah, in our town, you know, down at the creek, we would go and you would see, you know, blood running in the creek sometimes. Or there were wow. little things like that, but there was never a, a full-blown conversation about it. And the the specter of communism is still kind of the boogeyman in the country. Mm. So it's been used as a way to, you know, something that, that people don't like, they'll point a finger at, at that being communist. And, and that's why it needs to be banned or, or not welcomed or, or whatever. So it's it still exists. And there's a lot of reckoning to be done. The, the, I know the current president early on in his administration talked about reckoning with that history. And I, and I think that passed because there was such a blowback. From that, but right. so, um, so there hasn't been like a truth and reconciliation commission, like in, in South Africa or anything like that. No, no. But but the president that that occurred under in the overthrow of the government, you know, he was then the president until the mid nineties. Yeah, uh, Suharto. Pac, yeah, yeah, Pak Suharto. So that I think that's part of it too, is that it was it, it happened under under the president that is still relatively recent in their history. Yep. So. Yeah, similar thing in Paraguay. Um, you know, there was a history of a U.S.-backed dictator uh, that was long ago enough in people's minds that it wasn't like the topic of conversation. But, you know, people still had family members who suffered under that and that, that kind of thing. So kind of have to wrestle with that history no matter where you go in the world. Uh, I'm speaking today with uh, continuing our conversations with uh, Kentucky returned Peace Corps volunteers. Will and Amy Glasscock are joining us from Lexington today in the virtual studio. But it was 2012 to 2014 that they were in East Java, Indonesia. Uh, is, is that just the eastern part of the island of Java or is it a whole separate island? Yeah, it's uh, actually a separate province. A separate right? province, yeah. Yeah, so there's uh, West Java, Central Java, and East Java, and we were in East Java. And is Indonesia a place that a lot of Peace Corps volunteers serve? Yeah, I think when we were there, our group was around 60, and wow. uh, it might be 
one up a little bit. Of course, there's no one there right now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But we were the sixth group ever to be there. Okay. And there was a big gap from the early 1960s. There were the first three groups. And then because of like some political issues and fear of embedded, like maybe these guys are CIA. Yep, yep. They were sports coaches, but they had to end the program then. And it restarted back up in 2010, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Group of the new generation to come in. So this was mostly a new idea for the locals. <laughs> yeah. So it was funny because the idea of Peace Corps was not embedded in these communities. And so we showed up and I know some of my good friends after, you know, maybe a year in, they would say, by the way, you know, some of the other teachers suspected that you that you're not just here to help because they were like, why else would you be here? Right. <laughs> And I said, you know, that there's a lot of people at home that wonder why, why we would be here too. But it, it's, it's just, it's Peace Corps. The longer you're there and the more people get to know you and the more you're open to getting to know people and, and being, you know, we live there, we, we earned the same salary, we lived and ate the same food and celebrated the same holidays and, and all that, that eventually people, you know, don't question what you're doing or bad or not at you being there and you just become part of the community. And I'm sure you, you experience the same thing. Well, and that's that's what's so special about Peace Corps service is it's two years. So that's enough time to really break down some of those possible issues of mistrust and really develop relationships. And, and I think that's the work that's necessary, not only to do intercultural exchange, but to do good sustainable development work. It's, it's all about relationships and trust. And the, the unfortunate truth about most missionary work or shorter term services or even like just NGOs doing sustainable development work is the projects tend to be on them much shorter timeline. The other neat thing that in Paraguay, since they had this 30, 40 year history of Peace Corps, we got to follow another volunteer service in sight and build on that. And then another volunteer came in after us. And, serve, and, and so we maintained some of those connections. I got to see a lot of projects through over a whole six year long stretch of volunteers. But it doesn't sound like that's the case in Indonesia, although maybe now uh, or up until COVID. <laughs> we were there, there had never really been a, another volunteer at a site that a volunteer had already been at unless it was like an early separation situation they would like try to replace them but since they've been gone they have had volunteers at my school again I don't I don't think they haven't had one at yours, but I think they are starting to do that, you know, and if they're a good partner with the Peace Corps, then they try to give them another volunteer. And they've expanded also into, it was originally just East Java for Peace Corps, and um, it just expanded to West and Central and I think a few other islands. Yeah, it's, it's been expanding rapidly. And the government, at least the, the aspects of the Indonesian government that work with Peace Corps, you know, it's, it's a weird relationship that they're working out in 2010, 11, 12. But as the years have gone by, the government went from saying, you can only do this small thing to now saying, hey, can you do, can you help with health and ag and business development? And it's been, it's been a really great success story for Peace Corps Indonesia um, as it's been growing. The government's been open to having it grow into other, other provinces and, and hopefully other sectors. I don't know that they've moved into other sectors yet, but there's a real demand for it, so, which is great. Yeah. So you, you went over to teach English, right? What is the language situation in Indonesia? Is it similar to the Philippines where they sort of invented this national language called Filipino, which is just a mishmash of Spanish and all these indigenous languages? Is that how it works there? Sounds exactly like what happened. <laughs> um, yeah, it's called Bahasa Indonesia, which just means Indonesian language. It's very similar to Malay. So if you speak Malay, you can pretty much speak huh. Indonesian. And that's what's spoken at schools and government buildings. And then, of course, everybody has their own local language. So folks around us spoke Javanese, which we did not. So that made it a little more challenging to kind of pick it up. Because if yeah. you're just hanging out with 
your Indonesian friends, they're speaking Javanese. But we, it's, it's an easy language. It's pretty simple. And so we became pretty proficient in it. And I will say one of those downsides of being a married couple is that your language skills aren't as good as those of your single friends that are learning on their own. And we'd come home and speak English all night. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> well, now it's fun because Amanda and I get to speak Guarani at home and uh, nobody yeah. understands that. So <laughs> it's our... It's handy when your kids start spelling too and you need to back up. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I had a similar situation in the Philippines where, you know, I learned Filipino before I went over there, but or Tagalog. And then uh, the locals actually ended up speaking this language called Cebuanu. And so it wasn't really as useful. Like they knew as much English as they knew Tagalog. So <laughs> I had to hire a translator to do my research for sure. <laughs> uh, but that was part of the fun. Speak, a friend speaks Cebuano and I visited him in Cebu in 2005 uh, and then it turns out one of our neighbors is from Cebu also so it's been an interesting little Philippines mini community in, in Kentucky yeah yeah was it settled similar to the Philippines where people sort of came over on boats in little like little villages and set up little villages all over the island chain uh, and, and the culture sort of grew out from there yeah and it's been really it's been really fascinating to the history of Islam in Indonesia yeah tell me about that you had you know some communities convert because uh, the the country was was mostly uh, Hindu and, and Buddhist and then lots of other animisms yeah. yeah but as the communities would you know either convert to Islam many fleed up the mountains into the volcanoes and so then you've got these really unique communities in volcanoes that are very different than I mean it's 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 mostly it's mostly um, all Muslim now in in Java at least. But to see, you know, just the different aspects of where you are elevation wise and how that culture is a little different than where you are, where we ended up, we were at sea level where we lived. And so we were in the hot rice paddies and all that. But in a 20 minute bus ride, you could need a jacket because you're up on the side of a volcano and, and just the differences in cultures from that aspect, which goes all the way back to how religion spread across the, yeah. across the country. And so it's different on different islands. Um, so Bali is majority Hindu, Flores is majority Christian, and it just kind of comes down to who was trying to rule Indonesia at different times and um, has made that influence in the language and the religion and the culture. Is religion still a source of conflict? Yes and no. It probably yeah. depends on who you ask. Um, yeah. You know, when you've got like such a big majority of one religion, then kind of makes things easier in some ways. Huh. On the other hand, there's only six that you can officially choose from. So if you're outside of that, then you're technically breaking the law. Wow. You know, there's not like a legal open Jewish community there, for wow. instance. Huh. That means there are no Jewish people that live there, but you kind of choose those and are expected to have one on your ID card. Huh. Um, and so, you know, they kind of told volunteers when going over, you know, maybe you're not religious or maybe you're actually an atheist or something, but uh, you need to pick one and stick with it. <laughs> so, oh, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> but, but we ended up living in what's considered one of the more conservative, conservative Muslim, I don't know, the equivalent of a county, at least in East Java and, and probably across Java. And we fit in totally fine because they, they said, you're not, you're not Muslim. We're not going to expect you to be Muslim, oh, really? which was interesting because some of the other volunteers in, in probably less conservative areas were asked to kind of go through the motions. Uh, the mosque but, or, yeah. but for our friends, they, they welcomed us to the mosque. We celebrated holidays with them. But they didn't want us to do anything that would be 
seen as just pretending to go along because right. because that that would be offensive because they knew that we weren't Muslim and that they were. And so it was really interesting being in such a conservative area. There was a tremendous respect for us being different, but we were also you know interested and curious, and so we were welcomed into to observing and and celebrating holidays and all that, but without an expectation that we would you know attempt to go through any any of the actual ceremonial religious aspects of it. Huh. I have to ask while we're on the topic of religion, if there's any sort of indigenous animist kind of religion that still exists or is practiced, or is it just elements of the culture where you're like, oh, yeah, I, know, I can see where that came from? Yeah, uh, from my understanding, there are still pockets of people that identify um, with animism. And, you know, I would say that's probably influence in Indonesia's unique flavor of Islam and their unique flavor of Hinduism. Those people, of course, would maybe choose another religion to put on their ID card, perhaps Hindu or Buddhist. But yeah, that is still part and more so in some islands than others. Cool. Uh, Okay. So uh, Islam also has influenced education in Indonesia, right? And so you both taught English, but in very different contexts. Uh, Will, you taught in a public high school that was mostly Muslim, but had a little diversity. And Amy, you taught at a madrasa, right? Tell me about that. Well, honestly, it wasn't a whole lot different than Will's school. It was still a public high school. But at the madrasa, it just means they had more Muslim courses, more okay. religion classes than his did. And there were no students there that weren't Muslim. So I was the only lady there that didn't have my head covered. And oh. um, I got to wear pants and you know, a little bit shorter sleeve shirts. And, you know, must have been were- nice in that hot weather. <laughs> I was. Um, I wondered what it would be like, and they never asked me to dress, you know, dress appropriately, of course, but, you know, dress like them or uh, say anything I wasn't comfortable with or be somebody I wasn't. And so there's just a lot of mutual respect there. But yeah, it was a public high school. There are there are other kinds of madrasas there as well that are more like boarding school type places. But yeah, it was all like civil servant teachers and things like that, too, just like Will's. Okay. And Will, what was your school like? Can you describe it for us? Yeah, the big difference is Moscow was probably, I think, 90% Muslim students, 10% Christian students, and then there was one Buddhist. And so when you would have the one class period a week of religious-focused curriculum, the Buddhist student just went home. <laughs> but, um, but that but that but that diversity uh, was was spread pretty evenly across all the classes. So it was it was. Um, that, that would have been the biggest difference is that you had. But if you, if you came to my school and you set in on a class, you would assume that it was a, a purely um, Islam-focused school. Uh, they would recite um, morning prayers and that kind of thing to start the day. Huh. But, uh, but the students, again, we lived in a really conservative place, and the students had so much respect for one another. Um, students would ask me about my Christian background in the United States versus um, you know, if they were a Christian student, what it was like in Indonesia or Muslim students were just curious about our lives. And it was so fascinating, again, back to that respect due to how conservative the area was that people um, didn't expect that we were going to that we were going to convert or that we were there to convert someone else. And that made made doing our jobs a lot easier because it kind of took that, um, you know, that that fear, or that issue just off the table completely. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm speaking today again with returned Peace Corps volunteers from Kentucky. We've got Will and Amy Glasscock joining us from Lexington today. They served together in East Java, Indonesia in 2012 to 2014. Uh, so I'm also wondering about English. Is it is it widely spoken? This is a place where tour, not maybe your village or anything like that, but this is a country where tourists come, whereas I served in a place where it's on nobody's radar. No, no tourists come to Paraguay. 
which was a, one of the nice things about living there, right? I, I wasn't seen as a tourist. I was, I must be there for a reason. What was that like in Indonesia? And what did people want to do with the English that they learned? Yeah. Um, you know, it's taught in schools, uh, pretty much all schools now. So uh, there are people that are fluent. And, um, but I would say outside of the English teachers in my school, the rest of the teachers just new kind of phrases here and there. And, you know, you'd meet some like pretty talented students every now and then who spoke English pretty well, especially if they were from a bigger city, more English opportunities, more resources for tutors, things like that. So it's definitely growing. And I just wanted to mention, since you're talking about tourism, we had the opportunity to go back last summer with our daughter who was four at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, we got to go back to our village and we also went to some touristy places too because it was our vacation but um you know being in those first we went to Gili Ayer which is this beautiful tourist island off the coast of Lombok which is near Bali and you know we show up and we're this family of white folks and we the Indonesian just comes right back to us and yeah. we start talking with these ladies walking down the street and people were just so excited that we were speaking Indonesian to them and because they were trying so hard to speak English, you know, and uh -huh. it just kind of gave a break. And, and I think for whatever reason, the, our accent or the things that were just really comfortable saying, people thought we were really fluent. And, you know, if the conversation didn't get too deep, then yeah, sure, we're fluent. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but then going back to our village, um, you talked about how great it is to be somewhere where you're not a tourist. And I can't think of any other place on the planet other than the United States, basically, that we could go and feel like we're just experiencing such an authentic situation and authentic experience as outsiders um, because there was no tourist infrastructure in our village where we lived. And it was just so amazing reconnecting with our friends there and using our language skills to, to see people again. And it had been five years since we had been yeah. there and introducing our daughter to everyone too. And she had a blast and, and everyone loved meeting her. Oh, I bet. Wow. Yeah, Amanda and I got to go back. We've only been back once, and it was about 10 years. We, wait, I, we waited too long. But it was 10 years after service, and uh, the same thing. The Guarani came flooding back right away, and it felt very much at home. But I have to say I was shocked in 10 years how much had changed in the village we lived in because it's, you know, a, a semi-tropical environment. Things grow really fast. <laughs> and so, like, there were big old trees, you know, all over the place that well, that didn't used to be there. And actually, you know, I, a process of development had taken place and it looked pretty sustainable, but there were more homes, uh, you know, or rebuilt uh, nicer homes and things like that. Uh, so some money had come in to the, to the village. And uh, I was amazed at how many people were still around uh, because when we were working there, a common thing was, uh, you know, you, you, you get to a place where you get some education or you can make some connections so that you can leave uh, and go work someplace else, whether it's in country or out of country. Some people went all the way to Spain to work, right? Uh, but there must have been enough good happening in our our village that people were staying or coming back, and and, and you know the children were starting new families and, and all that kind of. It was so refreshing to see. It was so encouraging to see. I had honestly thought it was on the verge of you know disappearing this whole place because. Uh, of big agribusiness coming in from Brazil. Brazilians were buying up all the land and putting in big soy farms and uh, giant ranches and things like that. So I, I, I was fearful for the place when I was there, but excited to see it all 
still 10 years later when I came back, even better than it was, left it better than it was, which is very encouraging. I'm sure not all Peace Corps volunteers get that experience. <laughs> we saw some of that too. There was, um, we, when we left uh, in 2014, it was right uh, before the presidential election. And one of the candidates who ultimately won, Jokowi, one of the things he campaigned on was uh, infrastructure. So ports, highways, and all that. And in just those five years, and I know some of the, the highway plans were underway before his term, but just in those five years, we got back. And, and I think I described earlier, three-hour bus ride from Surabaya, which is the second largest city in the country. That is now a 45-minute wow. drive on a road that's nicer than I-64 out here. <laughs> uh, and, and that didn't exist five years ago. And it was so crazy. to uh, A friend of ours gave us a ride to the airport when we were leaving to hop in a car and jump on this interstate <laughs> and it's just sparkling new. It, it was, it was amazing. And it's so good for, um, you know, bring, bringing opportunity throughout the, throughout the Island and, and the region where we live. It's just incredible. Yeah. That's going to transform things uh, radically. I would imagine. Wow. All right. Well, uh, we've got about 10 more minutes left. I certainly want to talk more about what it's like serving as a married couple. You mentioned one downside, which is that uh, you have each other to lean on in terms of language. Uh, but what were some other observations of how your service compared to the single folks? We One thing that we had was the family that we lived with um, were they, they essentially, you know, we, we you, you never know what kind of experience you're going to get with a host family. In, 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 in Indonesia, all volunteers live with host families. And I think that's the direction Peace Corps globally is moving, uh, mostly for security and safety. And and we definitely benefited from living with them on the security safety end. And if we had a question or, or an issue, we could, we could ask them for help. But other than that, they really just gave us kind of a wing of their house and they yeah. and let us, we, we lived almost like renters rather than part of the family. And there, there are downsides to that. Um, but for two years in the big picture, we were grateful that that was the situation because we had a lot of autonomy to to cook our own food or to go out and, and get food and um and just kind of live our own lives there in the house and and we and we had enough friends and other families that we spent time with that we didn't miss out on that on that aspect but that was that was one thing that was nice i don't know if, if it had been one of us by ourselves that we would have been in that situation so yeah and you know just always having somebody to come home to at the end of the day and express your frustrations and they know exactly what you're going yeah, through yeah 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 you know, really, really nice. I can imagine. Did you visit other volunteers in site? That's something Amanda and I did a bunch. We had a lot of volunteers come stay with us. Oh, yeah, that uh, too. Yeah, yeah. We were, you know, even though we were in our early 30s, compared to the, you know, the, the younger Peace Corps volunteers, we were seen as like the old yeah, married the couple. The old married couple, yep. We come to get like a nice home-cooked meal. Yeah, <laughs> make them Mexican food. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, some of the meals we cooked together were just amazing. Tell us about the food in Indonesia. Um, I, man, I love me an Indonesian restaurant, but is that legit? Is that what you eat when you're in Indonesia? Pretty much. In, any Indonesian restaurant we've eaten in has been, um, you know, is, it, it, maybe not all the all the food was what we had where we lived, yeah. but it's pretty accurate. Um, yeah, so uh, Indonesia invented basically tempeh, which is a oh, soy-based yeah, and it's so good. And if you ever have a chance to make it yourself or eat it in Indonesia, it is a different thing than what you get at the local Kroger. So yeah, just yep. put in a plug in there for packaged tempeh is gross, but the real <laughs> stuff is amazing. Um, rice with every meal you haven't eaten unless you've eaten rice, which right. is common in many parts of the world. Same in the Philippines. 
Yes. Um, sambal. So like a spicy chili sauce, tofu, um, those kind of things. Satay is, is really big there. So yeah, it's, there's a lot of delicious food there. And boy, when we went back, we really enjoyed it. <laughs> bet. Right, right in our last month of living there, um, this, this restaurant or little like roadside stand that we love to eat, uh, they had the best sambal and it was, it was, and that's the spicy, um, tomato chili based sauce that you eat on a lot of food. And we had asked them in, you know, in, in, in the Javanese are the most polite culture on earth. And you never ask something directly. You, you know, maybe yes. if you're interested, maybe possibly <laughs> but we said, could, could you teach us how to cook this? Cause we're leaving. We're not going to open up a competitive uh, stand across the street. And they, they were, they were like, no, nah, I don't know. I don't know. You know, maybe come by on Saturday. But, and so we felt really guilty. We thought we'd really put them in an awkward position, but we showed up when they'd asked us to, and you, you would have thought they were hosting a cooking show. They had what they were making for the day. And then they'd set up a miniature version for Amy. And then my job was to take notes <laughs> And, uh, and so we've been able to make it at home and it's been so nice. And we got to see those people at that stand when we went back last summer, which was great. But if we ever get to see him in person, Justin, we'll try to bring some of this stuff to share with you. <laughs> totally. Wow. Well, that sounds delicious. You guys are making me so hungry. Paraguay, uh, Philippines was similar too, and Paraguay similar too. Like just uh, amazing culinary history and so many types of food available, but not everything. There's always something you miss. And for me, it was bagels. <laughs> so we had a friend come fly down, visit us from New York, and like, can we bring you anything from the United States? bagels oh man that first bagel by the airport was just to die for but what did you all have anything like that that you really missed you know at first there was a bunch of things and our parents would spend tens of dollars in products and pay hundreds of dollars in shipping to send us packages <laughs> and then the longer we were there we found international grocery stores and we pretty much fit all of our needs but like the one thing i kind of would always ask for would be walnuts um for baking oh, yeah really find and everything else i think pretty much found or maybe a beauty product here and there that i couldn't find but you know indonesia is pretty developed in a lot of ways and yeah. because of the tourist industry and the bigger cities um we got accused from some other friends of having the posh core experience a few times but yeah. <laughs> Yep, yep. Everyone compares their experience, right? <laughs> There's always this one-upsmanship when you talk to Peace Corps volunteers. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I, we had, uh, you know, we 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 didn't take advantage of those opportunities often, but but occasionally in Bali we would go get a blizzard at Dairy Queen, and oh I did God. not mind being in the posh store. Well, you just tell people we still went without toilet paper for two years. So it shuts it right down. Well, there you go. It's like COVID all the time. <laughs> I want to ask you too about uh, you were involved in in sports at the school, uh, Will, and then uh, Amy, you were involved in girls empowerment work. Talk, talk to me about that stuff. Yeah, well, uh, we we both were involved in that actually. Um, the Peace Corps worldwide has these glow camps, girls leading our world, and so a lot of groups in other countries will put on these camps for young girls and teaching them empowerment and information on health and. Um, leadership and things like that with outside speakers so we helped put on was it two while we were there yeah two of those in our region with help from our counterparts and things um and that was really great really fun and special thing and i know from from the girls that, that i worked with that participate in that camp i mean it was, it was life-changing for some of them just to just to get to speak with with women leaders mm. from across the region who they didn't have 
wouldn't have otherwise had access to. And uh, I know one girl, it inspired her to, to um, balk at her parents' wishes and she ended up going to college, which was not in, in the plans for her. Um, one, one set of those girls hosted their own version of the camp just for other girls at their school who didn't yeah. get to go that they did themselves with no help from anyone else. It's just, just a little, just a couple days of that. You saw like massive, you know, life changes, what, how far they carry on, who knows, but, um, but that was really rewarding to see. Is and the, then, is the oh, form, is the form of Islam there fairly patriarchal? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, there's definitely sort of clear lines between men and women's roles within the religion um yeah. so um, but but education's encouraged and it's yeah. um there's a, a large um pool of women in the workforce you, you don't see it getting into into to that level yeah. but yeah and they've already had a, a woman president so oh wow yeah, yeah. Had a, <laughs> <was> there. yeah. <laughs> And then the last thing I want to ask you about is libraries and, and your work with the International Book Project. A lot of Peace Corps volunteers end up working with libraries, too. Tell, tell us why that was such a cool thing to get involved in. Yeah, when when I first when we first arrived at our at our main site, it wasn't long after. And, and um, there was a local uh, philanthropic group in Lexington called Altrusa uh, Lexington, and they were looking to do a partnership with International Book Project. And one of the uh, women who worked with Altrusa or was part of Altrusa uh, had gone to college with my mom and had seen that we were in Peace Corps. And so they reached out to us and it, it ended up taking like 18 months just because of <laughs> trying to figure out the customs issues and all that. And, um, but it was probably in the last uh, three months before we, before we finished up our service, the books arrived and we, we were able to establish libraries at my school, Amy's school and um, in a local elementary school. And it was, it was great. And the, we saw the students, um, you know, immediately using the books. And one of the teachers at my school was telling me about how great the hunger games book was. And I said, we know there's two more and his jaw hit the ground. He was so excited (laughs) that there were two more in the series. Um, Don't get him started on Harry Potter. (laughs) But that was, but that was really neat. And then since we returned home, uh, international book projects based in Lexington. And so I've, I've got involved there and I'm, and I'm currently the president of the board of IBP. And it's been, it's been so rewarding to, to now be on that side of international book project and continue working with, you know, right now their international shipping is has declined, but when things, you know, before the pandemic and then and then hopefully soon after um, resume sending libraries around the world to Peace Corps volunteers. I mean, they make the best partners because they're in the communities. They know exactly what's needed. They've got the local partners to help. And um, it's the ideal situation. So, wow. Well, we're all out of time. I wish we could talk all day, uh, but I am getting really hungry now that we talked about food in Indonesia. Uh, Will and Amy Glasscock, it has been a great pleasure to speak to you and learn about your service in East Java, Indonesia and with the Peace Corps from 2012 to 2014. Uh, hey, if people want to check out the Peace Corps, they're still accepting applications, right? Even though they're not currently sending volunteers, but peacecorps.gov. I highly recommend people look into it. Uh, thank you all for joining me today. Thank Thanks you, for Justin. Having us. All right, stay tuned, everyone. Coming up in just a minute, your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas about how to get involved in sustainability now. Cero. 
Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting from here in the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM. And you might be listening to us on our live stream online at forwardradio.org. Or you might be listening to our archives. The podcast versions of all of our local programs are available at forwardradio.org. And while you're there, hey, chip in a few bucks to keep us on the air. It only takes $20 a day, but that's not coming from advertising. Thank, thank goodness. And it's not coming from grants or anything like that. It's coming from people like you and me chipping in a little every now and then to keep us going. The other thing that makes it work is volunteer power. So click on participate if you want to become a programmer here at the station or help us out behind the scenes. It takes a village to raise a radio. And that's what we do here on Forward Radio. Well, it's time now for our weekly community action calendar. So get your pencils sharpened and your calendars out and get ready to take action for sustainability this week. Hey, what happens Tuesday, October 13th? All of us who have not requested a mail-in ballot can start voting on Tuesday, October 13th. In-person early voting begins throughout Kentucky. If you're across the river in Indiana, it actually already started on October 6th. Information is available about how to vote and where to vote at GoVoteKY.com for everybody here in Kentucky or across the river, Vote411.org slash Indiana. This indeed is the year to skip the wait, the chaos, and the crowds of Election Day by voting early, and everyone can do it. You don't need a special excuse, and it's not too hard. So it's available during regular business hours and on the three Saturdays before Election Day, and voters who feel safe voting in person are encouraged to do so before November 3rd as that's the most certain way to ensure your vote will be counted and that appropriate physical distancing can be maintained. So here in Jefferson County, there are four locations available for you to go vote starting this Tuesday the 13th running through November 2nd. That's Monday through Saturday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And then on Election Day, these same locations will be open along with others from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Jefferson County residents may vote at any of these locations regardless of what precinct you live in. And drop-off boxes will be available at all these locations for absentee ballots. However, those drop-off boxes are also only available during the set voting hours. So that's 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Monday through Saturday. And those four locations are the Kentucky Expo Center, 937 Phillips Lane, at the Fairgrounds North Wing, and you enter through gates 1, 2, or 4 at the Expo Center to vote. Also downtown at the KFC Yum Center, you can vote in the foyer there at Main and 2nd Streets. That's where I will be voting on Tuesday. I'm so excited. Also, the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage is available for voting every day, Monday through Saturday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. over at 1701 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. And if you're out on the East End, 
You can vote at Louisville Marriott East in the Commonwealth Ballroom of the Marriott East. That's at 1903 Embassy Square Boulevard. Again, all the details are at GoVoteKY.com or across the river, Vote411.org slash Indiana. Now, Tuesday the 13th is also the last day to apply to be part of the Southwest Dream Team's Future Dreamers Civic Leadership Academy. Future Dreamers is a community-centered leadership course that focuses on developing and highlighting emerging leaders who live, work, or learn in South and Southwest Louisville. The goal is to cultivate a network of lifelong advocates and ambassadors for the region to build community social capital and act as a pipeline to fill leadership roles in the city with members and supporters of South Louisville. This program is for emerging leaders who want to learn more about the South End and Southwest Louisville, to build connections with others who care about South Louisville, to grow your professional and community network, to meet local community leaders and decision makers, to gain knowledge of South Louisville community assets and opportunities to explore and engage with the stories of South Louisville, to build the skills necessary to address priorities in the South and Southwest Louisville region, and to become lifelong advocates and ambassadors to improve quality of life in the South End. Applications are open through Tuesday, October 13th at midnight, so you can apply to be part of the 2021 cohort at swdreamteam.com. That's the Southwest Dream Team's Future Dreamers Civic Leadership Academy. Apply by the end of the day, Tuesday at swdreamteam.org. Tuesday evening, the 13th, there's a Bridging the Divide, Why Can't We Talk Anymore? virtual program, 6 to 7 p.m., hosted by the Fraser Kentucky History Museum. In a time of hyper-polarization, can we still have civil discussion? As we approach the general election in November, we take on civility with panelists from both sides of the political aisle to see if it's possible in today's toxic culture. Panelists will include Julie Rock Adams, a Kentucky State Senator, Morgan McGarvey, also a Kentucky State Senator, Charles Booker, Kentucky State Rep, Chandra G. Irvin, the Executive Director of the Center for Peace and Spiritual Renewal over at Spalding University, Lisa Schultz, who's superintendent of schools, the, the Archdiocese of Louisville, and it's moderated by Rachel Platt. And you can learn more and register at FraserMuseum.org. That's F-R-A-Z-I-E-R Museum.org. And it's Tuesday the 13th, 6 to 7 p.m. It's virtual. It's free. Check it out. Civility seems so far away, but yes, we can bridge this divide if we all pay attention and work together on it. Also, Tuesday, uh, that doesn't sound like your thing you want to do. Uh, there's another fascinating online forum, Tuesday, October 13th at 6 p.m., called Critical Latinx Indigeneities Forum. This forum on critical Latinx indigeneities features scholars whose research on indigenous Latinx cultural politics pushes the boundaries of Latinx, Latin American, indigenous, and black studies their research points to the different ways that this field is challenging settler colonial logics of native erasure, anti-blackness, and migrant insecurity, while advancing transnational conceptualizations of solidarity, decolonization, and indigenous continuance. The event will be moderated by Simone Ventura Trujillo, whose new book, Land Uprising, reframes indigenous land reclamation 
as a horizon to decolonize the settler colonial conditions of literary, intellectual, and activist labor. Trujillo argues that land provides grounding for rethinking the connection between native storytelling practices and Latinx racialization. This is co-sponsored by the NYU Center for the Humanities and the Native Studies Forum. You can register for this great book launch event on Eventbrite. Uh, you can find the link uh, at latinxproject.nyu.edu. That's latinxproject.nyu.edu. And it's again Tuesday the 13th, 6 p.m. online, and it's free Critical Latinx Indigeneities Forum. Also Tuesday, uh, maybe you could do this as well, at 7 to 8.30 p.m. online, there'll be a lecture on Workers on Arrival, Black Labor in the Making of America. The Carter G. Woodson Center for for Interracial Education at Berea College presents this special program with Dr. Joe Trotter, Jr. His lecture will explore the unique history of African-American labor exploitation and wealth creation on American soil. It counters widespread and misleading notions of the black poor and working class as consumers rather than producers, as takers rather than givers, and as liabilities rather than assets in the growth and development of the nation. Drawing upon a century of historical research, this talk will discuss the movement of urban black workers from the periphery of the African-American working class during the 18th and 19th centuries to its center during the 20th century. It not only calls attention to the ongoing course of environmental features of this process, but also to the ways that people of African descent repeatedly forged creative movements to free themselves from both local and global forms of inequality. Joe William Trotter Jr. is a professor of history and social justice at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He's also the director and founder of Carnegie Mellon's Center for African American Urban Studies and the Economy, and he's president of the Urban History Association. He's currently working on a study of African American urban in life since the Atlantic slave trade. You can register on eventbrite.com and you can find the link at calendar.berea.edu. Go online to calendar.berea.edu to find the link to register for Tuesday, October 13th, 7 p.m. lecture, Workers on Arrival, Black Labor in the Making of America. Coming up Thursday, October 15th, 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., it's the next Green Convene, hosted by the Louisville Sustainability Council. And this time, it'll be the Virtual Kilowatt Crackdown Awards. Uh, There'll be a welcome from the Louisville Energy Alliance and the Louisville Sustainability Council, uh, and an awards presentation with the Kilowatt Cup and the Kilowatt Crackdown Awards, as well as a panel discussion. The Kilowatt Crackdown challenged building owners and operators of the greater Louisville area to realize the benefits of energy efficiency. Top honors will go to the most efficient buildings and the buildings making the greatest energy improvements, but all buildings striving to decrease their environmental impact will be recognized and you can learn who the champ is in this year's virtual kilowatt crackdown with the awards ceremony at the Green Convene this Thursday, October 15th, 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can find the register you can find the link to register for free at louisville sustainability 
Now, coming up uh, Friday, October 16th, uh, the Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression is kicking off a whole week of action centered around October 22nd, which is the National Day of Action Against Police Abuse. So it all starts this Friday uh, at 7 p.m. with a spooky movie night, and all of these events are taking place at Brianna Square or Injustice Square Park at 6th and Jefferson. Uh, And the spooky movie night will be hosted by the Black Women's Collective at 7 p.m. with kid-friendly movie and at 9 p.m. there'll be an adult movie for free out on Injustice Square on Friday the 16th. Then on Saturday the 17th at 11 a.m. it'll be Brianna's Roots Protest Homecoming Harvest Festival. There'll be a parade featuring floats, chicken and apple dumpling cook-off, and kid-friendly activities starting on Saturday at 11 a.m. at 6th and Jefferson. And then on Sunday, Sunday there'll be at 4 p.m a white ally family reunion hosted by wrath with a barbecue cookout chili cook-off and kid-friendly activities and all of these great things are just kicking off a whole week of action so you can learn more at facebook.com slash injustice square and finally i want to let you know about a couple great volunteer opportunities coming up this saturday october 17th from 9 a.m to noon it's an original highlands alley cleanup day the original highlands neighborhood association invites everyone to meet us at the patterson playground 1418 morton avenue that's just off baxter avenue behind taco luchador the day begins with a light breakfast distribution of supplies and then we'll break into teams for an alley cleanup come masked up and please stay six feet apart bring gloves and yard tools to use on our overgrown alleys in the event of inclement weather we'll move this event to october 24th we hope you are able to join us in meeting one another and making the neighborhood a better place and you can register in advance at eventbrite.com just search for ohna alley cleanup ohna alley cleanup for the original highlands neighborhood association's alley cleanup this saturday the 17th 9 a.m to noon and finally saturday the 17th in the afternoon it's the last opportunity to join the louisville community grocery and the louisville association for community economics and the community farm alliance in their effort to feed the west it's a fantastic event i have participated twice and it's really uh, life affirming to just go door to door and give free locally grown by black farmers produce to people in need throughout uh, the west end of louisville they're collaborating to pack grocery bags filled with this fresh local produce grown by black farmers and delivering them to families in the west end through feed the west it's saturday the 17th there's two volunteer opportunities you can sign up for you can either help pack the grocery bags from three to five or deliver them door to door from five to seven p.m and in both cases you show up at chef space which is located at 1812 west muhammad ali boulevard and everyone is requested to sign up in advance to help and you do it at signupgenius.com and you just search for louisville food cooperative at gmail.com as the sponsor of this great volunteer opportunity saturday the 17th three three to five for packing the grocery bags and five to seven for delivery Uh, signupgenius.com search for louisville food cooperative at gmail.com and that's all we have time for today here on sustainability now stay tuned lots of great stuff coming up on forward radio and i will be back in your ears again in one week's time my friends stay well stay safe stay masked up